Hello and welcome to RIA Edge. I am Mark Bruno, Managing Director of Wealth Management at Informa Connect. And I am thrilled to have a very special guest here today, Scott Hansen, co-founder and senior partner of Allworth Financial. Scott, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hey, thank you, Mark. It's really nice to be with you. Appreciate it. And I think as we're getting RIA Edge up and running and off the ground, everything we're focused on here relates to growth. And a lot of the discussion that we have had around growth is focused on mergers and acquisition, but we're also very much focused on organic growth and how certain firms are leveraging marketing, business development strategies to grow intentionally. And that's the really important word here at RIA Edge. At Allworth, you've done all of the above. So we're definitely excited to get into what it is that's been driving some of your success, both on the organic and the inorganic side of things. But before we do, if you don't mind, You've had a tremendous amount of growth over the last several years and a great story. Scott, could you give a little bit of background on the history and formation of Walworth, please? Sure. And I, I think as you're talking about growth, if you look at the stats, boy, very few firms are really growing. And I think a lot of it stems from not many firms are market, marketing focused, uh, which we, we've had a, from the start. Pat, and I, Pat McLean and I started the business back in 1993. We were with uh, Lincoln National Life Insurance Company for a couple of years right out of college. We started the RAA. We didn't even quite understand what an RAA was, but we started one at the time. And, and the uh, objective back there was to provide a fiduciary financial planning experience. And we wanted to reduce the conflicts of interest as much as possible. So coming from kind of an insurance sales background to uh, more of a fee advisory uh, approach was, was, was quite different for us, but I, I think the market liked it. And from the, from the early days, we targeted a couple industries. We targeted telecommunication employees. We also have done a radio program for 26 years on the weekend, which is podcast now, obviously as well, but, and that's been a big driver for us. And then as, as the years went on with digital, we've ramped up our digital marketing and we've always been really focused on organic growth. That's out making sure we're growing of, of new assets each year. Forget about what the markets are doing or haven't done, but like making sure we have having new client ads every year. That's really been our focus. Excellent. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you as one of the first guests here on RIA Edge is when I look at the way you have grown, it has absolutely been by design and not by default. So we'll pick apart all of that. But I do want to start with the M&A side of things first, Scott, you've been very, very active. One of the most active firms, not just over the last couple of years, but really over the last eight, nine, 10 years. So if you don't mind, can you tell us just a little bit about your acquisition strategy, why it is that you, and I would I would say you were ahead of the curve as a, as a buyer. And then I also want to obviously talk a little bit about your most recent deal that closed at the end of the year. But just as a buyer, can you tell us a little bit about why you got into the M&A game as early as you did? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons for that. One is we're, we're in the process of creating a national firm where we have a very consistent client experience. And my, my, my goal, Mark, is that if, if your Aunt Susie is in uh, Sarasota and she calls you and says, hey, Mark, I'm retiring next year, what firm should I talk to? That you can name a firm, whether she lives in, in Sarasota or Sacramento or Cincinnati, it's really not going to matter. That firm really doesn't exist right now. So we're in the process of creating that. And in order to find great talent and great advisors, it's really by through that for us, it's been in large part through our MA. It's finding other good, uh, good people who want to join forces with us that, that see the vision, that want to roll up their sleeves, partner together to help us accomplish what we're, what we're set out to do. It's, it's secondly, if you look at just from a, the age of our industry, that advisors, I mean, succession planning is a real issue. And there's a lot of guys and gals that maybe they're late 50s, early 60s, late 60s. They, they don't want to throw in the towel yet. They don't want to quit entirely. But 
they also know that they need some sort of plan in case there's a health issue for them or health issue for a spouse. They've all witnessed it with their clients. They know they're eventually not going to be able to either going to get disabled or pass away at some point in time in the future. So just that whole succession planning issue is, is a major thing. And then you know, to be totally candid, just from an economic standpoint, there's, there's quite a bit of, I guess, arbitrage, you might say, that can be had by combining firms together. So those, those are the three main drivers for us. Absolutely. So you mentioned talent, number one, and region in a way, right? And this ambition to be a national advice you know, provider firm. I think we'll get into that in a little bit more detail shortly, but it, it really helps when I hear that, put your strategy into context. And then obviously you talked about some of the other drivers, but is there anything that you could say just in terms of you know, the profile of a firm, whether it's you know, the size or the business model that is a particularly good fit? with all work. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, sometimes you hear people talk about price and that sort of thing. It's, it's really about a cultural fit first and foremost. And the majority of firms we talk to, I'd say 80%, it's just not a good fit from the start. We don't even bother having any, any further conversations. So for us, it's really finding somebody who they need to be financial planning focused and not all RAs are, as you, some are Mm-hmm. fancy themselves as portfolio managers. They need to be financial planning focused first and foremost. They need to be somewhat willing to have a their, their investments managed by investment team rather, rather than individually. So they need to be able to willing to kind of give up that, that side of things. Many advisors are, but not all. They need to be have a, a true fiduciary focus. So there's a lot of advisors that have sold some financial product over the last decade that maybe just wouldn't fit well with our model as well. So, I mean, those are kind of the first things. And then it's it's someone who really cares about the, the team that they've got there, whether it's one or two employees or a, a huge staff, they want to make sure that their their team has, has a bright future going forward. And once, once it's, we pass those things, then it's, then it's really figuring out if there's a good fit economically and regionally and all those sort of things. Yeah. And I think just from an activity standpoint, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I remember around the time that your you know, deal with Lightyear in Ontario it was announced, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. I saw that you had done 10 deals since 2017. Did we miss anything in the last 15 minutes or so with the rate of MA activity? You don't know sometimes, but is that still accurate, that count? Yeah, that's accurate. We've done a few already uh, mid-year through mid-year 2021 and with many more slated for the rest of the year. We, we clearly plan on growing both organically as well as inorganically. Yeah, it is an incredible amount of activity. Uh, and I think you you have a really interesting position as a, a very active buyer, but also a seller too. So I, I would ask if you don't mind maybe sharing a little bit more detail, the deal with Lightyear and Ontario teachers, and even seeing that sort of yeah. long-term capital come into the space was really interesting when I saw the news back in October. But what is a partnership like that enable for Allworth that you couldn't necessarily accomplish independently? Yeah, maybe I'll back up a couple of years. Our, our first private equity partner, uh, we, we, we joined forces in, in August of 2017 with uh, Parthenon Capital Partners. And over my career, I had never borrowed a dime. My, Pat McLean and I had started a few different businesses. We started uh, Liberty Reverse Mortgage that was sold to a Fortune 500 company. We started a network a business. Anyway, we, we had a few different things. Uh, we had never borrowed any money, never took any outside capital. And like most of it, we didn't start with any money. You just <laughs> you saved a few nickels as you went along and it reinvested in the business. And I think we hit a point in our careers where 
not having that access to capital was constraining our growth. We had ran our advisory business so focused on net income. I mean, first of all, serving the clients, but aside of that, it was really about the net income and how many, how, how much profit we can squeeze from it each year. And so as we started expanding some of our marketing, we realized like, we have another big financial crisis like we've had. I mean, like the last 20 years, we've had a couple of major bear markets. Like we have another one like that. There's, there's no way either one of us had the risk tolerance to dig in our piggy banks and, and sure. help fund the business. Uh, we were just at a stage in our life where more, more money would not change things, but less money certainly could. So we, we realized we didn't have the risk tolerance at that point and we needed some outside capital. And so when we joined with um, Parthenon Capital Partners, we sold a majority stake to them and it was quite liberating. By doing the transaction, we had enough cash set aside to take care of our family needs, personal needs, regardless of what, what the future would look like with, with the business. And then it, it gave us the, the, the capital to, to really grow the business. And that's what enabled us to do those 10 transactions that we did since that time. And we also had great help with our, with our partners. And with, people would ask me about what's it like with these private equity guys. I said, I always felt like it's a team of consultants, smart consultants that have a, a checkbook. Mm-hmm. And we had a great run with them and uh, still uh, have a tremendous respect for them and still would consider them friends. But we, in the end of um, really the middle of 2020, the first days of the pandemic, we realized that the world, the world was going to continue in some form. <laughs> We, we, we decided to seek out a new capital partner for a couple of reasons. One is, is we wanted to kind of show proof of concept to the 10 firms that joined us because they're all equity owners as well to show that we're a growing organization and give them a chance to have some, some additional liquidity if they like. Also to be able to reward our leadership team that all had some sort of incentives tied to our growth. And then is, is to have a kind of fresh uh, capital with a, with a long run rate. And we were so pleased with joint forces with uh, Lightyear as well as Ontario Teachers Pension. They're both co-investors in Worth. And I think it's it's great because we've got, Lightyear has tremendous experience in our space, mm-hmm. having owned a couple of broker dealers, owning a couple of different RAAs. They just knew the business really well. They do know the business really well. And so they've sure. been helpful there. And then Ontario Teachers Pension, Canadian pension plans are very long-term investors. Uh, they really have no plans of selling many of their companies. They've had companies mm-hmm. in their portfolios for 20 years. And so it gives us kind of the best of both worlds. We've got this somewhat permanent capital with uh, the pension plan that would be willing to buy more later in the future. And then we've got a, a private equity partner with a tremendous amount of experience that at some point in time are going to, just because the model of private equity, they're going to have to exit and turn their, their capital into shareholders. So it's it really, it's, it's, it's the best of both worlds. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I could actually probably do an entire podcast with you on the role that permanent capital might play in the RA industry. But there are lots of other things that we want to cover as it relates to your growth. So for one, congrats on that deal. And we look forward to seeing what comes next for Allworth you know, 2.0, let's call it. Just a, a final question on the MA side before we start to talk about some of your growth that's come through marketing and other sort of digital strategies. When we look at some of the buyers that are in the marketplace, there are lots of terms that get thrown around aggregators, consolidators, you know, platforms. But how do you actually describe Allworth as a buyer and yeah. what you know problem do you specifically solve for sellers? We we are a full integrator. So we were called Handsome McLean for the majority of our existence. We rebranded a couple of years ago for a couple of reasons. One is, well, frankly, we weren't that well known at, outside of Sacramento where the home office was. So as we're going to go to a national firm, no one knew Handsome McLean from Adam, so it didn't really matter. And then secondly, if we were, were growing through our partnership, 
with our M&A, do we really want to ask somebody to drop their name and then take on Hanson and McLean, right? Like, it just didn't seem very collaborative. So we rebranded to Allworth Financial. In order for us to provide a very consistent, repeatable experience for your Aunt Sally, whether she's in Sarasota or in Timbuktu, we, we all need to be singing from the same song sheet, which means we need to have the same, not only the same technology, we need to have the same processes, same kind of client communications, experiences, et cetera. So everyone really needs to come and, and, and join the Allworth way. And, and the benefits to that, obviously, from a client perspective, it's, it's quite obvious, but even from, from an employee standpoint, I mean, the folks who, who merge with us, they no longer have to be responsible for any of their running the office or all that stuff. All that's mm-hmm. taken care of by, by Allworth, so they don't have to worry about any of those. And, and they're able, for most, most advisors, got in the business because they love working with clients and then they end up spending most of their time managing a small team and paying the rent and all those other things. And it frees them up to be go back to just dealing with their clients again. I think that's, a, that, that's, that's really the benefit to those guys. The downside, of course, is they lose some, some autonomy and some flexibility. Frankly, I mean that's to be totally candid. Sure, there's there's all, there's a trade off. There is, and I think most people going into a transaction who are looking at it as more than a transaction, they're actually looking at it as a partnership. Anticipate that, and I think you know, that trade off is probably far outweighed by a lot of the benefits that they get by being part of the broader Allworth organization. And I imagine one of those benefits is you know, sort of shifting gears a little bit is their ability to tap in and leverage a lot of the marketing that you do and can assist them with. So maybe we just spend a a minute before we get into the specific strategies there. If you could just let us know, obviously you've grown quite a bit, but if we were to take out M&A and we were to take out the markets, can you share a little detail on your organic growth rates and also just the role it's played in shaping? We've we've grown high high single digits organically for a number of years. And we believe the firm is responsible for business development, not the advisors. So our industry is funny because most firms, they hire, well, they used to hire a lot of kids right out of college. Now they're hiring mid-career or whatnot. And they teach you how to go out and prospect and find clients. And if you do a good job finding a client, finding clients and selling them, then you've got a, a career in this industry. And if you don't, well, maybe you're going to have a back office role somewhere or we'll ship you off. You just go do something different. So I think it's kind of crazy. There are a lot of people in our industry, phenomenal financial planners, great with clients, they just don't know how to go find clients and they're yeah. not the kind of people want to hang out at the Rotary Club or the Chamber of Commerce to t- pass out their business cards. It's just not how they're wired. So we have a lot of advisors like that. And our firm is responsible for making sure that we've got a steady stream of new clients. And so we do a variety of different activities. We've got a future client development team that vets people who can reach out to our firm, uh, make sure they're the right kind of fit, schedules an appointment with the advisor the advisors don't even have to worry about scheduling appointments. Just suddenly there's, there's a, a future client sitting in their office or maybe nowadays sitting across from Zoom. <laughs> but um, right. the firm is fully responsible for business development. Unfortunately, we don't we probably don't get as many self-generated business <laughs> clients as a result because what we found is once somebody starts getting clients handed to them, they no longer go out and hunt at all. But it's really worked well from an organizational standpoint. We're able to generate lots of new clients every year for our advisors. And it's, it's a, it's a winning formula. Yeah. And I, and if we can maybe drill down into some of the specific strategies a little bit, I I've seen and read a lot of content that's come from you and from Pat over the years. you are very prolific. I've seen your digital footprint expand and you know, it's been very impressive and different from what you'd see from a lot of other RIA firms out there. It really feels like you use the term business development, but 
you are truly marketing in, in a very authentic way. So can you share just a little bit more about your marketing and your content strategy and what yeah. sort of drives it and what are some of the things that you are trying to accomplish with getting your voice out in the market? Yeah. So we, we've got, I think, 18 or 19 people on our marketing team and we spend you know, somewhere between five and 10% of our gross revenues on marketing. So we, we, it, we take it quite seriously. Um, right? mm-hmm. We don't participate in any of the uh, custodial referral channels that I know a lot of advisors seem to like. Uh, the concept of paying 25% of revenue indefinitely as opposed to five to 10% upfront, I don't understand. So right. <laughs> I, I'd much rather contr- control our own, our own, our own marketing. And I think our approach, you, you mentioned in the RA space, our, there's not many RAs that are doing a great job of marketing. Fisher Investments, obviously an exception to that. Uh, and I think Edelman yeah. Financial Services has done a great job as well. Yep. But if you, you look at other industries, they're so much further ahead in marketing than, than our industry is. And a lot of what we're doing is just, frankly, just copying what some other industries have, have done and, and employing some of those tactics. And it's it's just, a if you think about it from basic marketing, like you got to generate awareness and then kind of the top of the funnel and you move a, a potential client through the funnel to the point where they get interested and now they want to have uh, learn more and having a meeting with an advisor. So we, a lot of the content that we produce is designed to both attract potential clients to begin with, as well as then nurturing them through that process to the point where they feel comfortable enough to uh, have a meeting with an advisor. And then we, we do a lot of content to make sure that clients are well-informed and they feel good about their decision, et cetera. So it's not like I'm doing all the writing. You see, we've got two yeah. full-time writers. I do some writing. We've got a lot of, a lot of help there. Of, of right. And we use some, um, some freelance writers when we need to as well. So we've got lots of people helping us create great content. I mean, as far as in, in, in this industry, there's not many firms that have more content than we've got. No, that is for sure. And I'm glad that you mentioned the staff and also the percentage of revenues that you're devoting to it. And just the fact that you're, leaning on other people to assist with the writing, because while there may be other advisors out there who are running businesses that are smaller, I think an important takeaway is that it doesn't all have to come down to you, right? To have the idea of what do you want to say, right? That aligns with the services and sort of the needs that you can fill. And you also don't have to be the one who pushes every button on the keyboard, right? To make it happen. Mark, I lack most of the skills to get hired at my own company. So (laughs) I've learned over the years, I just need good people uh, around me, people that are experts in different areas. So our leadership team, our chief marketing officer is extremely talented, knows what he's doing, built up his own team, uses his own outside agencies, knows how to make those things work. Our our chief technology officer has a lot of experience running financial services firms, et cetera. I mean, it's the people that that are on the team that make the difference in the organization. And a lot of it is just, you got to, if you don't understand it yourself, you need to make sure you've got someone who's got a lot of experience and expertise in a particular area to to join your team. Yeah. And I think just one final question on the way you're approaching it. It seems like from the outside looking in that you're spending it, it, one, it's successful and two, that you're able to quantify it in some way. But tell me if that's accurate. I mean, how do you actually measure the success of a lot of the content that you're creating? It's the toughest thing in marketing. And we are just now putting a new software system in place, which is Cosmos of Fortune, to be able to essentially, when you take it, when you look at a, where a lead come from, well, they, they might have responded to some ad originally. They might have listened to a podcast. They might have watched a webinar, right? There's a number of different things. And so how much do we attribute to each of those different areas to see what's effective and what's not effective. So there's a lot of uh, data science behind that. 
We have three people on our data science team you know, just kind of help working on those things. We, we look really closely. And then we also know if so, we do some marketing and someone responds to something, they're not going to become a client in two months. I mean, a lot, sometimes they mm-hmm. take 24 months before they become a client. So it's a lot of match back we focus on. And with marketing, it, it's part art, but it's a lot of science, particularly these days with digital marketing. No, absolutely. And it's nice to hear you actually put some sort of reasonable expectations around the conversion time. I mean, 24 months, it's, it sounds long, but depending on the starting point, it sounds very consistent with, I'm just thinking about my own process when I actually hired a financial advisor. Right. Uh, right? Well, you think it's, how terrifying it must be to hire a financial advisor. I try to look at it from the consumer's perspective, like something must have really went wrong with your existing advisors. You've, you're probably jaded already. And now you go to meet with an advisor for the first time. It's like, is this person going to steal from me? Are they incompetent? Are they, are they going to be such successful salespeople? They're going to cram some product down my throat that I didn't even want. I mean, all those things. Then I, we've all made stupid mistakes with our finances that are they going to humiliate me, embarrass me? And I don't have as much as the next guy. I mean, all those things. It's just got to be really challenging to meet with a financial advisor the first time. So we try to Think about it from a from a client's perspective. We try to view everything from the from the client's lens. How might they be feeling, and how can we help them along their their journey of making a decision to, to hire an advisor? And what are those things that we need to do so they feel confident with their advisor and follow their advice? I mean, I, the longer I'm in this business, the more I'm convinced that the greatest value we provide is in keeping people from making mistakes from which they cannot recover. And we mm-hmm. all saw that a year ago in the in the in the pandemic. Those clients throwing the towel on their investment portfolio. And if we look at the self-directed 401ks, these 401k plans, the people who called the majority of the time, they weren't buying more stocks at the bottom, they were selling. Our job as financial advisors is to keep people in their investment plans. And the, the more we can do to make sure we've got a great relationship with the client, where they feel comfortable, they feel confident, they trust us, even when they don't understand, that's when they can have the best outcome. And I think just picking up on the one word that you mentioned a couple of times, trust, you know, one of the final questions I have for you is going back to March when the entire industry, your country went you know, remote on a dime. We saw that there were a lot of companies that were for the very first time figuring out how to do business development and marketing. And you've obviously been doing it for quite some time and didn't necessarily, maybe I'm wrong, but you didn't necessarily need to start over. The, the, the biggest question I have is, how have you seen that your marketing efforts or your advisors or both have actually been able to create enough trust, right? In the absence of an in-person it's meeting amazing. that you get them to actually hire you, right? When they've never met you. I mean, they've only done a Zoom or a call or maybe multiple. I, I've, I've always been such a believer in face-to-face meetings because um, there's nothing quite like breaking bread with somebody or just sitting across the table from somebody and getting to know them a bit, and which is you can't do and when it's all through Zoom. So part of it, we, well, first of all, when the pandemic really hit, we we took a few weeks taking on any new clients. So we suspended any new client ads okay. and our hundred percent focus was communication to existing clients. All of our advisors were doing that. And then our marketing team created a lot of optimized uh, communication pieces from each advisor to the client. So they, they, every advisor felt like they had a whole communication team behind them to the clients. But but then some of our marketing just had to pivot because, well, we used to have a lot of in-person workshops. We had 10,000 people register for workshops in, in, 20, in 2019. Well, wow. no more in-person workshops, right? Yeah. So we had to pivot some of our, our marketing to rely more on some digital marketing. And then we just had to get really good on what does a remote client experience look like? And we put together an internal team in the early days, like, what are the elements of a, of a successful remote client experience? What would the consumer want and need? Et and so we got pretty good at that. And 
we added lots of clients during the pandemic, all virtually, never met with anybody, their advisor in person, all through Zoom, which is amazing. <laughs> but that was the world we all were all in. So someone you think about someone was like in a lot of pain financially. I'm going to go hire a financial advisor I never met. I'm going to trust someone I meet over Zoom. I think people got to the point where they're, they're comfortable with that. And there's going to be some percentage of the clients going forward that might prefer that sort of relationship and would prefer to have an advisor that they know and trust, even if they're in a different market. I know we get people all the time listen to our podcasts all around the country that reach out to us and say they want to become a client. They know we don't have a local office yet, but they're totally fine uh, working remotely. Just a final question for you as well, as we're starting to emerge from this remote world and there is more face-to-face and in-person, I am curious to get your thoughts. I'm sure at some point we'll see workshops come back together and some of the more traditional marketing tactics, but what do you think will sort of be here forever? What's here to stay from the Allworth perspective and how your marketing approach has changed and evolved over the last 15 to 16 months? Well, there's going to, again, there's going to be some percentage of clients that would prefer a remote experience. I mean, you think about it, if you're 58 years old and you've got retirement coming in a few years, you want to meet with your, your spouse. It's a lot easier to be able to look at a calendar, uh, a dig- look at a calendar digitally, find out when the slot's going to work for both you and your spouse. You're both at different work locations or maybe working at your bedrooms or what, probably both working at different work locations. <laughs> and you can meet with, you can meet with your advisor at, at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, you don't have to drive downtown and find parking and all that other garbage. It's just can be very efficient. So I think there's going to be a, a certain percentage that will prefer that. And that'll be the, the, the way that they find an advisor going forward. But there's still going to be a huge percentage that are going to want to meet face to face. And so we are positioned for both. It certainly makes it easier in some ways, not easy, but easier if you're trying to become a truly national RIA, right? Which yeah, I think you are at this stage, and especially when your clients can be anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> so Scott, thank you for taking a lot of time out today to walk through your M&A and also your organic growth strategy. This is exactly you know what we're trying to focus on here with RIA Edge. If you're an advisor and you're trying to figure out what is the best way to grow intentionally and strategically, um, whether it's through M&A or it's through really thoughtful marketing and business development strategies, I think everything you touched on here today will help our audience tremendously. So Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. It's good being with you. I'm Mark Bruno, Managing Director of Wealth Management and Informa Connect. And thank you very much for joining RIA Edge. We look forward to sharing more stories about how some of the largest and most influential and some of the fastest growing firms in the RIA industry are growing by design, not by default. So look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Have a great day.